Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I get to ask again, did you watch Thursday Night Football? People are just so excited that you get to ask this question 16, 17, whatever number of weeks it oh, is a year is now. really just to amuse myself. Really. Yeah, uh, exactly. So <laughs> the, the answer is no, I did not. You missed a good game. It was fun. Uh, I mean, Josh it, it, Allen didn't the, miss a target the whole time, basically. <laughs> for the first time that I can remember, it was a good matchup having the Super Bowl, you know, the current Super Bowl champions play against this year's Super Bowl favorites. So it didn't um, help your fantasy team? apparently don't start with me matt stafford is my quarterback it didn't go well but <laughs> Look, it shows you how invested i am in fantasy football that i didn't even watch the game that you didn't even care you were just like yeah, no i don't no big deal all right whatever mm -hmm. all right so it, look it was a fun matchup it was fun to have nfl back it won't be on nbc all of the time anymore it's going to be an amazon game so get used to finding that on your streaming service jeff you know, you, you realize what you just said, right? Yes. You just said, I should get used to looking up something that I don't watch. Yes. Get used to it. Okay. Well, I don't need to know where it is. Get you can, on it. You can tell all the listeners where it is and that may help them. It doesn't really help me because Thursday night is not for football. End of story. So you don't watch Monday night football. Is that not for football either? Or was Monday no, night Monday football night football is okay. Okay, I just wasn't sure if you were an only Sunday no, football you know, guy. No, you've known this for six years now. I just can't buy into Thursday night football. And, and the fact that the NFL knows that there is a group of people that will watch any football game, so they'll put on the dreck of the games As on I Thursday have my night. hand up as you talk. <laughs> exactly. That's, to me, that's what's so offensive about it, is that it is usually – the Jets versus the Jaguars type of game. And, and nobody wants to watch that. Yet there are people who want to watch football. I, I get that. They would watch football seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's not me. I still want football to be something I watch on Sundays and something that I want that I watch on Monday night. And that's it. That's all I need. I understand. But with their increased gambling, lots of people want to watch football oh, on Thursday well, okay. night. <laughs> All right, let's talk about, let's get into the season. Uh, okay, tell me, what should my expectations be as an Eagles fan, Mr. Giants oh, fan? Well, no. So we do need to start with something because last week uh -huh. we actually had the discussion yes. that would there ever come a time that Howie Roseman would admit Jalen Rager was a mistake. And we both were joking that there's no way that's ever going to happen. And lo and behold, to Howie Roseman's credit, he has acknowledged it. Handle, by the way, for, for somebody, for a general manager, who you, most of them are not this forthcoming, and Howie hasn't always been this forthcoming, his answer and the way that he handled that and the way he talked about, you know what, I'm just going to make up for that mistake. That was impressive. That I think that might have been the most impressive discourse that Howie Roseman has had as a leader of the Eagles. I was very impressed with his honesty about it. Now, it doesn't make up for the pick, but that's what you want to see from somebody who makes a mistake that they're willing to admit their mistake and then not compound it by holding on to it. They well, got I don't even care if they admit it. Uh, to me, it's whether they recognize it and, and learn from it and make sure they don't make it again. And I think that that should be what comes out of this, not necessarily him saying, I made the mistake. It's here's what happens when I have to evaluate something that I did. 
that his ego isn't so big that he sits there and says, I'm going to continue to ride this because I picked this person. This is my guy. And he didn't do that. Well, first of all, I mean, it's regular that you and I say things that are wrong on the show and go back and hear it. So it's not terribly surprising that well, we said speak something. For yourself. Normally it happens a little bit longer than one week after we say <laughs> it. But, you know, it does happen occasionally. Like, I I am not, like, overly this this team is unbelievable going to the Super Bowl guy. I think it's 10-7 and seven type team. I think they have... I think really? Because there's a lot of people who disagree with you. I know. There's a lot of people, 11 and 6 and 12 and 5. And look, I don't oh, like I don't care. Look, I don't care. It, it, as, a, as a football fan, I don't ever get into, you know I don't do. So every year we talk about whether we're going to go through the schedules of, of our teams and, and pick the wins and loss. I don't believe in it. But the, the question is, is will they get to the playoffs, regardless of whether they're, what their seed is? Yes. And, and can they make a run? Yes, and, I think both. And so with, with the Eagles, they're going to make the playoffs. Unless there's some catastrophic injuries, they are going to make the playoffs. With this good an offensive line and defensive line, I don't see how they can't dominate a lot of games, especially against lesser competition. And, and then the question is, if they're healthy, can they make a deep run? And I think the answer is yes to both of those things. And yet it seems like there's a bunch of the fan base that's been watching Hard Knocks is afraid of the Detroit game this weekend. So like they can't they, they think they're going to be 12 and five. And at the same time, they're worried about Detroit. I, I think it's going to be a tough matchup against Detroit. I think they win the game ultimately. But I think Detroit's going to be a tough team to play against. I just don't think they're there yet. And Detroit's got offensive line problems, which is their biggest problem right now. Vitae is one of their offensive linemen, starting offensive linemen. He's out. Their backup offensive lineman wasn't there. And the Eagles' strength is their defensive line. So if they can get pressure, they're going to make a long day for Jared Goff back there. Look, you and I both love ESPN. But I got to say, I saw a a Chiron on the bottom of the screen at some point in the last day that says, what do the Lions need to do to make the Super Bowl? And why would that even go? I didn't even stick around to see what exactly they were talking about. But is that a question that should ever be asked? I don't like, ask it. Lions, Super Bowl. Like, why bother? Like, were they just trying to see how many people would stick around to see what the answer to that question was? Yeah, I think that's really all it's about. It's just one of those clickbait things. And you it's the get Lions. Those, well, you got to get those Lions fans in to, to watch and see what's going on, right? The well, Lions have never been in the Super Bowl. You're though. an outsider. They, they had one of the greatest running backs in the history of the sport. And I think they made the playoffs, what, once? Uh, they had one of the greatest wide receivers in Megatron in the history of the sport. I don't, did he ever make the playoffs? And you had Matt Stafford, who was the number one pick in the draft, who had a great career there, who maybe made the playoffs once, if at all, and then immediately goes to the Rams and wins the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> the, Lion, the Lions are the worst of the worst. They, they are of, if you can't find, five teams in any sport that have a worse history of, of losing than the Lions do. Look, I'm, I'm not concerned about the opener as much. I am curious to see. You are. What, I'm, you I'm, are. No, I think you're, they're going to win Because you're the worried opener. about everything. Because you, like you say you're going to enjoy the season. You're not going to enjoy the season. I will enjoy. No, you'll I enjoy will. moments, but you will worry before every game. I will ride the roller coaster of the season and be miserable at times and very happy at times. That is my attempt at fandom. You are. Well, this, this week you should just ride it and enjoy it because it's the Lions. 
All right. Um, Mr. Giants fan, how do you feel about uh, your team going into the season? Looks like I don't want to have... talk about it. That's, <laughs> that's, how, that's how well it's going to go this season. I mean, I, I, I am going to go to the home opener, I hope. So um, I just I don't know what to say about this team. I, there's just not enough there, especially on defense for this team to compete for a division, let alone a playoff. All right. So who wins? I hope the I'm NF- wrong. Who but, wins the and NFC I hope the coach East, is a genius. What? Who wins the NFC East thing? Cause our friend Keith uh, put his prediction up with the Cowboys the up Eagles. there. So, okay. So the you Eagles. don't think it's the Cowboys cause Dak Prescott wait, wait, just, hurt himself. Just, putting just so on the we're wrong clear. Shoes. I mean, I, I don't think we should be puffing him up and talking about his predictions. Okay. He's on vacation. So we shouldn't be talking about him at all. Going to need to Second send him all, this let's, clip let's, of the show. Let's make it perfectly <laughs> clear the only reason that he's predicting that the cowboys win is it's to, to get set them up for a fall so he can do more michael jordan crying memes that's the only reason that happened also so let's get just under... move on from that the cowboys are not winning the division i i did you see some of the you know we, no. we do a, we prep for the show did you see some of the gambling projections for this year 18% yeah, of and... all American adults to gamble up 3% this year. 49% of uh, bettors will wager online up from 18% in 2021. I mean, you're, and... you're really, well, you talk about who wants to watch a Thursday night game. The more these numbers go up, a lot of people, and they really don't care about you as much anymore because these bettors will watch every game because they have money on it. You'll only watch the Giants game. Uh, you won't watch clear, Thursday they, night. They never they cared about me to begin with because I don't bet on this. Well, they cared about you as a fan coming into the game, paying for parking, paying for concessions. But at this that point, money, the that revenues, money means oh, virtually look. That money means virtually nothing well, to them. In this economic model, right. it means nothing. In the prior model, the fans coming into the stadium was essential to having those revenues to operate a no, team. Now, but not so anymore. It's TV and revenues that come in. That that that's where I mean, bookie usage is fifty percent higher in states without legalized sports betting. You think we see other states hop on board now with this, or do you think we continue to see hop other, on board with what? With letting sports gambling happen in different states? Of course they will. It's just a going to happen, going to be there. It you can get around it, so why not collect revenue from it, right? I mean, just because we we had a guy on last year who wrote a book on this, where people was it. I think, was it New York that didn't have gambling and Jersey did or vice versa? And people would literally drive over the bridge so that they could place their bets on their phones and on their mobile apps. back home. That was my yeah. favorite part. You use their GPS yeah. to fool it. Look, it, it just, I know that I pay more attention to this than you do. I pay more attention to how it's integrated into the broadcast than you do. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think this is the future of sports fandom. I don't think that sports fandom is about the name on the back of the jersey, and I don't think it's as much for some people about the team on the front of the jersey. I think it's about their fantasy teams. I think it's about their gambling, and I think they That's also the happen the to be fans, jersey. too. It's not, though. It's not the name on the back of the jersey because they root for the front of the jersey. It's the name on the back of the jersey because they chose them in their own league. They made their right. own team. They didn't let the general manager of their team pick and say, this is who you'll root for. Howie Roseman gave me these players. I went in my fantasy league, picked my own players to root for. It's just a different way of watching sports. Not one that I think that you will like particularly because it focuses more on the individual achievements rather than what the team is actually doing. But see, I don't I don't have to like it or dislike it. If- if people want to do it, I'm okay with it. It doesn't impact the game that I'm watching. I will, I will go to a stadium and I'll watch a game. I will watch and I will cheer for my team. If there's a particular player that I like because of his personality or her personality, I'll watch it. 
So it doesn't impact me one way or the other. I, I'm not discouraging it. If people want to do that, it, they're more than willing to do it. I'm not, this is not one of those areas I say, get off my lawn. It's one of these areas I just don't care. I love how's that. I love how you directly acknowledge on the show now that there are areas where you say "get off my lawn." Like you reply to certain questions with "no, no, not this one." The other yeah. ones is where I feel like that. Exactly. Right, well, this is not one to, of them. When we when we get the baseball, uh, then you're get then you'll get my. I do care and get off my lawn. Let's move to get off my lawn land. So, the Phillies. You told me last week not to buy in, not to get excited, and I did. And I did not did, enjoy wait, this week, Jeff. You you bought in, or you did agree with me, and that you don't shoot, you shouldn't get excited. I listened to what you said, and I still yeah. watched, hoping for wins, and was disappointed, oh. Jeff. Well, uh, then you're just a sucker. I, I well, how long have we been doing the show? You needed last <laughs> week to realize yeah. that. There's so no many- because normally you're the person who's watching to see when the sky is going to fall. If when it comes to Philadelphia sports, and here was the epitome of exactly how that would happen. And it's happening. I don't you have, want you the have sky a starting, to fall. Your best starting pitcher who's not pitching. You have your best reliever who's not relieving. You're, you have guys coming into the game that I've never heard of. They had a 31-year-old pitcher who I've never heard of before who came in the game. I don't know who this guy is. I guarantee you, you don't know who this guy is. And who is that? Nobody N- knew. Natoli? Natoli? Exactly. They got him from Toronto. I actually knew who they were, who he was, but it really? took me a double take. I was like, oh, Why, was he on your fantasy baseball team? No, last because year? I saw that they made it. It was one of the rare moves they make after the trade deadline. They made it the other day. They picked him up because he wasn't on the protected roster for Toronto. He had been in the Yankees system. So I actually did know who he was. Yeah. But can, he, can I ask you a question? Why wasn't he on the protected with, roster? Exactly. Because he stinks. With, well, he may not stink, but he may not be what you're looking okay. for. And it goes to the larger problem that this team looks shit. Shaky. Whatever it is, they don't look comfortable out there. Their bullpen looks lost and out of roles. Mm-hmm. David Robertson looks like he needs to be sat down to let his arm rest. Uh, I don't know how he was back in the game last night. I know Alvarado and Hand and everybody were down, but it just it, Dominguez thankfully threw a, a yeah I can't even session? talk a session last night yeah. threw an inning pitched well. Got to build him back up to see if he comes back and has soreness. Wheeler still isn't back. But when you're depending on guys like Edmundo Sosa, because Bryce Harper is struggling at the plate, that is not a recipe for wait, success. Wait, wait, wait. Bryce Harper hasn't hit for power in the week that he's been back, but he's still hitting. He's still he's still doing things out there. He's just not in an MVP form after not playing for two months. And keep in mind, that elbow is still a problem. I believe that he is dealing with many physical injuries. I mm-hmm. also think there have been multiple examples this week where there's been a lack of focus that you don't normally see from Bryce Harper. The one night where he ended up with the double but didn't run out of the box and almost right. didn't make it. The night mm-hmm. when he got picked off of first base. Those aren't things that you see from Bryce Harper. So I don't know if he's thinking about how he's feeling or he's thinking about what he's doing at the plate, but there's uncharacteristic things out of Bryce Harper. And then you're seeing some things that we thought we got away from with this team with some of the defensive lapses that they've had at times, some of the struggles in the bullpen. So all of a sudden, that comfort that you developed in July and August when they were playing under a new manager, now you look at it and they go, oh, it's September. It's the September Phillies coming back. Here's the collapse. Mm-hmm. And, and you watch last night. You get the one-run lead after battling back from a loss. All of a sudden, an error leads to a, a walk, a run, a single. You lose the game. And 
You can't lose games like this. Milwaukee won a doubleheader yesterday and made up ground. The best thing that's happened to the Phillies in the last week is that, in general, Milwaukee has not played well to make up ground. San Diego hasn't played well either. They haven't played well, but so they haven't pulled away. They're a half game ahead of the Phillies now, and the Phillies so the, the they're a half game behind the Padres right now, and two and a half ahead of the Brewers, who swept a doubleheader against the Giants yesterday. We'll see if Wheeler comes back, but he's still not doing rehab. It sounds like they may not have him do a rehab assignment. They may have him come right back to the majors. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, look, as long as he's doing side work, you don't have to worry about it these days. Him facing a couple batters that are in AAA isn't going to change whether Zach Wheeler can pitch or he can't pitch. Apparently, he's done this before, so where he's come back without having a minor league stint. Bailey Falter, starter for Wild Card Game 1. Have you gotten your Falter jersey yet? Not yet. Um, but you, you really should because you appear to be his number one fan. <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm, I'm actually. You really, are. You are so. Look, his, I'm, I'm you have surprised. uttered Bailey Falter's name more than his parents. Because have. he's been the, one of the most important <laughs> pitchers for the Phillies recently with everybody struggling. Mm-hmm. He's been the one where they've had losing streaks and he's oddly been the stopper the last guy you would think on this roster to stop, stop calling him streak. the stopper well, he's he, not the stopper he's the one that stopped the losing he's the streaks. one who didn't pitch really really bad he uh, yes he did not pitch come on very badly can we go to jeff get off my lawn status for a, a few minutes we'll leave right. the phillies you might be there. surprised but you won't let me be excited about the phillies i'm not allowed to ride the roller coaster be miserable about the phillies that's okay i'll just leave that there and i'll get into cranky jeff new rules we have new rules, Jeff. Baseball adopted them today. The players mm-hmm. all voted against them who were on this committee that reviewed it. How, how, how baffling is this? So they, the, the MLB set up a committee where they basically can overrule. They, I guess they have like a super majority or majority that they can propose this, make it look like they're working with the union. And every single member of the union can vote against it who's on this committee. And MLB goes, okay, now we're doing it. This is- we, you, you got to vote. Your vote didn't mean anything, but you got to vote. This is what we call providing cover. So now when baseball says we change the rules. Cover to who? Like who's dumb enough not to realize To who? To Rob Manford. We talked about this with Don Van Natta Jr. when he was on. He does not want to be seen as the bad guy changing the game drastically. And these changes, this pitch clock is a change for pitchers. Okay, can I, before we get to the rules. Does Rob Manfred realize this makes him look even dumber by doing this? Because he's the only one that would think that somehow this gives him cover. And I believe you when you say that he thinks it gives him cover, he probably does. But all it does is hate the members of the union. It makes the members of the union hate him more because it makes him look like more of a dictator. And by the way, Tony Clark, who, who runs the union, really shouldn't have allowed this kind of negotiation. Well, exactly. It shouldn't have been allowed if they didn't want it. And I don't think he really cares what the union thinks about him. I think he cares more what the public thinks about him. No, he cares what the union thinks. He does think what they think he about does. him, but he cares that people think he doesn't like baseball, that he doesn't love the game. And so this lets him say, look, I didn't do it. They did it. I put in this place. I let them decide. They did it. And well, it doesn't to be, to matter. To be fair, the, Manfred didn't come up with these rules. A committee came up with these. Well, rules. The, but Manfred helped. He's not the genius behind these Manfred ideas. Manfred helped negotiate the committee in the CBA that created the ability for the owners to make these changes with all of the players represented saying no and still pushing it through. 
So he found a way for them to be weasels is what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. So I just wanted to boil it down. You were the one talking legalese basically. And I figured that the rest of our audience should be able to understand Manfred just found a way to be a weasel. It, you and I have talked in, in a prior life. Yeah. I've, I've worked in and around politics. There, there, no, there's, we there's, never heard that before. We should have a show. There's about a that. reason that you want to be able to point to something else when you don't want to take the heat. Don't, uh -huh. don't blame me. Blame them. I All didn't right, do it. And that's what he's doing. So now we have these new rules. We have a pitch clock. Stepping off the mound is limited. Wait, wait, wait. Just go through each one. You're, you're going to... Well, these are the ones... Blowing that, right by no, no, pitch clock. Are you are okay ones, with that? These are the ones that go with the pitch clock. Because stepping off the mound goes in with the timing. So everybody has to be in their box within a certain amount of time. Am I okay with it? I guess. Are Why would you not? What, do, do, do you really need to watch the pitcher walking around the mound and, and cleaning their no, hands? No, and I don't need to watch the batter changing their batting gloves over and over again. You know what they should call this? The Nomar, for those that can remember, Nomar Garcia Parra role, who would go out every single time and adjust each of his batting gloves God knows how many times and go through this whole routine that took seem, it seemed like it lasted forever. Well, that's this part of the role. The hitter must have both feet in the batter's box and alert the pitcher, alert to the pitcher, meaning his eyes on the pitcher, within eight seconds. Right. So Nomar would have been like undoing glove one by the time the exactly. pitch was yeah. supposed to come there. But the I, most, but there's an interesting part of this rule. The most interesting part is that you can only come off the mound twice for each batter. And that includes for pickoff attempts. So you're only allowed, most people think two, but you're actually allowed three. The rule has to be, the rule is though, if you don't pick them off on your third attempt, they get the base, they advance. It's so there's going to be a lot more stolen bases now. So that's the first part. We'll have more stolen you, bases. Well, don't you want more stolen bases? I, I do. I don't mind okay, more action so this, in the game. This, man, this, is, this actually does manufacture uh, an older school of baseball. So from that standpoint, you can all come on my lawn. So you because, like this new rule? Yes, I like a majority of these rules because these, I think, unless I'm missing unintended consequences, are actually going to bring about an older school game of baseball. Because when you get to the shift, which you know how much I despise, they actually came up with something in addition to what I thought of, what I had planned on, of having two guys on each side of second base. You're, they're not allowed to have any infielders out on the grass. And one of the things I hate most about the shift isn't just having four guys on one side or three guys on one side. It's those ground balls between first and second that turn into outs because the, they have the second baseman halfway to the outfield wall. Look, I, I'm with you on that one. I was surprised the the one thing, they have to stay on their their sides. So every team yeah. has to designate two infielders on each side of second base who may not switch sides during the game, except if there's a substitution. So See, you can't I, move I, Alec. I don't Bone. think that rule. I don't think that's either written right, or I think that that's going to be adjusted because players switch positions in the game all the time. That's what I didn't understand. Injuries happen. Players. Well, move in, injuries, to... injuries happening would be a substitution. So that would be allowed, but okay. switching Gene Segura and Bryson Stott, from their sides of the bases would not be allowed under yeah, that is, particular. Why, why would they not allow that? I'm not sure. It doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, the third one they did is bigger bases, 18 inches rather than 15 inches. So I, I think that's there's, a safety there's issue, six right? fewer inches now for them to run three on each side for those steals with fewer pickoff plays. So Jeff is allowing people on his lawn for these new yes, rules. I am. So you, I, I, I thought that, that. 
I thought that they would come up with some and you'd be like, I don't like this. So you're happy with Rob Banford's fake committee that I could I could care less about the bases, but the other the other rules I'm good with. I think that they will make the game go faster as long as they're enforced. If they're not enforced, then this is all a big waste of time. You mean like how they have a pitch clock now at the top of the stadium and it just goes and shuts off at different times? Yeah, it's like just there. (laughs) So now they actually can use it and it'll actually serve a purpose. And you know what? The first couple months, there's going to be players that are going to complain about this. And they're going to say they're going to there's going to be arguments about whether it's the pitcher's fault or the hitter's fault as to when the clock started and when they didn't. And then there's going to be a few people that are going to whine about that. This is going to increase injuries. And I don't know how this increases injuries for you to get up and just go pitch. Well, we're going to leave that there. We've got about 50 seconds before we hit the break. When we come back, we've got our interview with Chris Clary talking U.S. Open. Jeff, I want to uh, talk real fast. The union, uh, you going to be able to watch this? They're getting there, man. They're playing good soccer. They, they're playing great soccer. I mean, th- this is impressive and we need to spend more time on it. We'll need to get, you know, union people on in the next couple of weeks instead they, of giving them 50 seconds. Records for wins, points, goals scored and shutouts. And there's still four games left. And you gave them 50 seconds. Well, that's not my fault. You're the one who kept talking about the bases and stuff. All right. Well, you know what? When we come back, we get to talk about one of the most exciting things in sports, which is the U.S. Open. So let's just go to the break and then come back. Yeah, man. I've definitely been enjoying watching. Let's hit the break. We'll come back and we'll talk to Chris Clary. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, let's get to the tennis talk. Christopher Clary of the New York Times, author of The Master, the book about Roger Federer and the man who has spent many late nights in New York these last (laughs) few weeks. Thanks for the time. We hope you are a little bit rested. I'm getting to sleep, but just not the usual times you get sleep, right? I woke up at 2 p.m. yesterday. I was joking. It was like being back in college again or something. You know, I was up till 630 in the morning watching tennis and writing about it and then racking from about 7 a.m. till 2 p.m. So, yeah, frat party time. So, all right. So, so, so you got frat party time. So you have a, a, a young frat party type guy that's in one of the semifinals. What's it like to cover the, the Alcaraz? Hey, you know, it, it's been a, a great, great year of tennis. I mean, there's been a lot of crazy things that have happened and strange stories, especially with, you know, Djokovic and the ongoing situation with the pandemic and his refusal to get vaccinated and, and the fact he can't play here. And that's been the, one of the big stories. So it's been an unusual year, but Alcaraz, you can see it coming last year when he reached the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open in spectacular fashion. He ended up getting hurt pulling out of his quarterfinal match. But I just sense when you watch him, he's he's box office. The guy is explosive. He um, His charisma just jumps off the screen. And if you get the chance to watch him live, it's even better. But he's a guy who's very positive energy, I would say. Once in a while, it gets negative. But he's got this sort of, um, you know, sunshiny, elastic, uh, just communicative way of playing tennis and you can't take your eyes off him in a, in a very cool way. And I've just really enjoyed watching his matches this year. He has lit up the circuit at different times. He hasn't been hundred percent consistent yet, but you know, to me, he's a champion in waiting and we'll see how it plays out against Francis TFO tonight. You know, there were three first time grand slam semifinalists for the first time since 2005 in this tournament. We're going to have a first time winner of the U S open. 
You've covered over 100 Grand Slam tournaments, 15 Olympics. Where does this two weeks of U.S. Open tennis rank for you with what you've seen out there? There have been a lot of great U.S. Opens and a lot of great Grand Slam tournaments. I mean, the last two years back-to-back, pretty crazy. I mean, last year, think about it, Djokovic was going for the Grand Slam, which hadn't been done since 69, came up one match short in the final. And then you had this amazing story of Amaradu Kanu, this qualifier that a lot of us had never heard of a few months before, coming through qualifying, not losing a set and winning the U.S. Open against another unseated player, Leila Fernandez. That That's kind of hard to top. This one's awfully good, though, because you've got you know two first-time champions at the U.S. Open. On the women's side, you have Jabur playing um, Sviantek. Neither one of them is one. And the men's side, it's we're not quite to that new era because Djokovic couldn't play here. Uh, and you know Nadal, I think, is a bit tired after a great season for him and kind of was a little bit down. But it, this is coming, and these four guys who are you know in the semifinals and are going to have a shot at winning uh, represent the new wave of tennis, and and that's what we're going to get. So we're going to see some more parity, I think, in the years to come, and and this is a sort of the start, big hint of a new era, I would say. Well, well, and to us, you know, when you're watching, and I've been to this tournament, when there's an American in this tournament who advances, especially somebody you weren't expecting before, there's an electricity to the tournament that that you don't see in a lot of other sports. We have a guy now in Francis Tiafu who's not only a guy who's just kind of popped on the scene, but is an amazing story. What's it been like to cover him? And what are the things about his story that have impressed you the most? What's interesting about Francis, too, is that you think about it with the Serena situation and Serena Williams is looks like her last tournament dominating coverage before the U.S. Open and dominating completely the first week. The TFO kind of slipped underneath the radar a little bit there because people were so focused on Serena. But when she ends up going out, this idea of what's her legacy, that's been the question. What's her legacy? What's her legacy for Serena and Venus? I think everybody was looking at Coco Goff, honestly, 18-year-old uh, woman from the U.S., African-American, great talent, ends up getting beaten. And then suddenly there's Francis Tiafo, who is, who's a guy that represents a lot of the same themes, to be honest with you. I mean, he got started playing tennis because of Venus and Serena, too. He comes from a background that's amazing in terms of just the way he came to tennis. He was his father and mother immigrated from Sierra Leone, were fleeing the violence there, ended up working as maintenance workers at this pretty uh, nice club in the D.C. area. It's produced a lot of players. I think um, the boys began to play tennis because their dad was there and rackets were around and balls were there. And, yeah, he could have been a fine tennis player out of that, but to be a champion-type level player, it's an amazing story. And it's not just about Francis, as he'll tell you. It's a lot about people in the community there in the D.C. area, this club, which has got a, a very good and strong junior development program, had a lot of players coming out of there. It all kind of came together for him. And he had, if you, if you know tennis, he has an unusual game. His forehand is, especially is a very unusual shot. It's almost whip, whippy and, and kind of an artisanal sort of shot. I know a lot of coaches were concerned that was going to hold him back. And I think at times it has a little bit, but he's just got this, a bit like Alcaraz. It'll be a great matchup because they both have this positive energy. They're both super fast. But Francis's story is really one in a million. And I think the New Yorker described it as the dreamy side of the American dream. And it, it kind of is that, to be honest with you. It really is that this guy, you know, just by complete happenstance coming to the sport, which is still in many ways not as elite as it used to be by any means, but it's, it's an expensive, hard sport to get good at and to have all these different resources come together. It's just a real feel-good kind of story that I think American sport could use. He's the first American man to reach the semis since 2006. If he were to win, he'd be the first to win since Arthur Ashe, the first African-American man to win since Arthur Ashe. Talk to us about the match against Nadal the other night. It was spectacular tennis. 
it was back and forth. And at the same time, you had this story of the roof closing in the middle of it, which seemed to really make Tiafo unhappy. I've never seen that. Is that new that they closed the match during play? And what do you think of that match in terms of sort of a passing of the guard with Nadal, Nadal being tired, but Tiafo emerging victorious? Look, in terms of the match itself and the way Tiafo played, you know, big breakthrough for him. It wasn't peak Nadal, let's be honest. I mean, Nadal hitting the ball pretty short. Like he's a little bit short on energy, and he, and he he had really had to kind of work hard to come back after he got hurt at Wimbledon. He he hurt himself there, had an abdominal muscle strain. He didn't play much at all until the U.S. Open. He lost his only match coming in to Borna Chorich in Cincinnati. So it wasn't an ideal preparation. So I think Nadal was a bit vulnerable. He's also waiting for his first child to be born. So I know he's a little distracted about that as well. But Francis played big time ball. Um, Francis has been close before against guys like Federer to big upsets. Hasn't been able to seal the deal. He has improved a lot under his coach, Wayne Ferreira, who was a big South African star back in the day, top 10 player, really knows his tennis. And I think he's uh, much more focused, much more um, able to withstand the pressures of a five-set match and, and, and kind of hold the course a bit more. You can see all of that. He's playing very, very aggressive tennis, taking the ball super early. He's also improved his serve. He has incredible racket head acceleration on the serve. So, Okay, it wasn't A plus Nadal, it was more like a B Nadal, but it was definitely a, an A minus A TFO, and he's come a long way. So it was no fluke, but the interesting thing is that he really hasn't been the guy we've been watching in American men's tennis all year. It's been Taylor Fritz or Tommy Paul, these other guys that had great years who were his generational counterparts. And I really didn't see Francis being the guy to I'm awfully glad that he has because as a journalist, you root for the story, and it's a great story. Okay, well, Frank, as for the roof, you know, it does happen a lot now in tennis where you'll see matches that are broken up outdoor, indoor like that. And it bugs the players because they get in a rhythm and players don't like to see change. You can't say it hurt Francis. All right. So Francis is now going to play a guy who the other night rudely kept you up until about 2.30 in the morning, as you called it, the five hours and 15 minutes of magic. What was it like to call one of the longest matches or, or be part of one of the longest matches in U.S. Open history. And, and what does that mean for Alcaraz as he not, has played over 10 hours of tennis in his last two matches? Just a quick thing. I got to be honest with you. Can I, can I be frank? You can. Covering tennis at the pro level, especially the Australian Open and U.S. Open, you're basically a nocturnal beast. I mean, you are, <laughs> you are, you are living in the night. I have walked home at 4 or 5 a.m. from these tournaments so many times through the streets of New York or through the, the gardens of Melbourne just going, what am I doing? Here I am still doing this. You know, I, I love the game. I love uh, covering it, but it, it is, it is an insane sort of two and a half week period of, of your life when you're going through these, these nocturnal events. But um, the, the atmosphere was tremendous. Uh, it obviously wasn't full by the end. It finished close to 3 AM. There were a few thousand crazies and that reflects New York that there was still this enthusiasm, but I'm telling you guys, this guy has a special talent. TFO is too, but Alcaraz is something really exceptional could be a generational type of talent in sports. He's just got this amazing combination of explosion and charisma and power and speed that it's just so much fun to watch. And that match against the other night was against a guy named Yannick Sinner, who's you know, Alcaraz is 19. He's from Spain. Sinner is 21. He's from Northern Italy. Looks, looks like he's a German or an Austrian, not like your typical Italian by any means, but it's from that Tyrolean area of Italy, Germanic speaking. And he used to be an Alpine skier when he was a kid, but this guy, He's more of a, a purist tennis uh, star in the sense that he's not as flashy as Alcaraz, but he hits a beautifully pure ball 
amazing ball striker. Coaches just love him. His technique is perfect, super smooth, and he's fast and good. And these guys have had a couple of great matches now. And if they both stay healthy, you know, 21 and 19, they're going to be playing for years to come. You never know in tennis. But I just thought the whole atmosphere was – what was amazing about it was they both, from the very first point in the first exchange, were playing high-quality, full-on tennis, and they did it for five hours. So, you know, the big three of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, obviously that's a huge bar to clear. But to see these guys sustain high-quality, high-velocity tennis, and in a very sporting, you know, thumbs-up kind of manner throughout the whole match, it was exceptional. And I think, you know, the crowd maybe didn't know all these, these guys that well when they started, but by the end, they were really connected and, and to see them, and there's a match point saved in the fourth set by Alcaraz, but the level just did not drop. That was the crazy thing about it. Yeah. I was tired watching it. Uh, I, before we move to the women, I have to ask, uh, Nick Kyrgios played well at times, but I mean, at other times he looks like happy Gilmore on the golf course, smashing his clubs with his, his tennis racket into the ground. Uh, what's up with the meltdowns other than he's got $32,000 in fines. You know, that's Nick, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, in a way, I mean, I, I, I'm walking down the streets in New York the other day and I, there's a guy who works at the place where I stay and he goes, so who's the guy who's always talking to himself? Who's the guy who's always like, you know, hitting crazy shots and talking to himself. And this is a guy who doesn't really follow tennis. So that's part of the explanation of why Nick, you have to say is good for the game. He's an amazing talent, McEnroe-esque in the terms of his shot making ability, what he can do with a racket. Nobody else I've seen be able to do. He gets shots that invents basically amazing touch power big serve but he just can't control himself he's gotten a little bit better obviously did enough to get to the Wimbledon final and I think he's had you know to be you know poignant for a moment I think he's had some you know pretty big mental health issues that he's talked about he's been yeah, big issues to get through pretty dark places he's been to so we shouldn't make light of it entirely but it, when he gets on the court you know it, it can be a wonderfully you know amazing experience to watch him make shots but also so frustrating to watch this guy just self-destruct and he does he does it all the time and I think he has the talent where he's been at this year to have gone and won this U.S. Open. It was possible. But he just has a really, really hard time sustaining the concentration and the, and the self-control. And honestly, he hasn't been put in the hard yards physically to be able to stay healthy for these seven matches, best of five sets over two weeks. It's a big ask. And I just don't think he's uh, psychologically ready to do it yet. Wimbledon, he only had to play five matches because Nadal pulled out of the semi and he played a good final against Djokovic. But, he, you know, as a tennis guy who watched the sport, you watch him and go, this is not entirely tap potential and it can be very frustrating, but he's a different kind of cat and um, he's going to march to his own drummer. And I still feel like he'll find maybe a way one time to pull off one, one major. It'd probably be at Wimbledon if he does it, but he's got, he's got the game to, to win at least one, I think. When you see what happens to him, these meltdowns, do you get the chance to talk to other players that are on the tour? And what, what is the general consensus of him? Are, are they tired of his antics? Do they Are they sympathetic to what he's going through? And do they root for him or root against him? I think it's a real mix. I think they all can, anybody who's played tennis knows it can be a frustrating game. Unfortunately, it attracts perfectionists a lot of times. And that's just a bad, it's a bad matchup. <laughs> With a sport where you're almost all the time going to lose every week, only one guy wins, and you know, inevitably you can never perfect it. You're going to make mistakes. So it, it's an interesting sort of uh, inherent um, conflict within the sport. So everybody can see Nick and see this frustration and, and relate to it in some way, but it can drive some of his opponents crazy. Stefano sits it past the Greek star. They played at Wimbledon, and, and it was a really edgy, ugly match, and you know, they were hitting the ball at each other and so Sissipas called him a bully and it gets, it can get really nasty. 
And Mick, you know, has that capacity to really uh, get under people's skin and he knows it. I think he uses it sometimes to his advantage and disadvantage. So there's a, I think it's a mix, but a lot of guys in the locker room also feel a little bit of, I think, empathy because they know this is a game that can drive you crazy, but just Nick manifests it a lot more than a lot of other guys do. Switching to the women's side of the bracket, we we talked a little bit about Serena. John McEnroe said during Sunday's coverage, the first week was the Serena Open. Now it's the U.S. Open. Uh, talk to us about what the first week was like with the atmosphere surrounding Serena, her last match. And also, Jeff hates when I ask, but the Serena effect on ratings, because there were 4.6 million viewers, a 43-year high for ESPN for tennis for her farewell match. Talk about her impact of the first week. Yeah, Daniel Medvedev, number one player in the world, the men's side, he said, this is Serena's tournament, basically. He was like, nobody was asking him any questions about, except about Serena. And you look at the transcripts from the press conferences for the first week, it was always like, so what do you think about Serena? Have you ever met her? What do you do? So it was all about that. So I think the players got it to a point because obviously 23 majors and they knew they're in the U.S. Open. So, but I think the McEnroe's description is very apt. It was very much like that. I'm not sure that was the way it was processed in Spain or Norway, but that was certainly the way it felt here for sure. But, um, you know, it's an iconic moment in a lot of ways to see uh, an athlete like that get the crystallized so many different things. That's what I felt like. It was, all the different parts of the culture were weighing in on her. And I was at the New York Times. We had a meeting before the tournament about planning stories and planning ideas. And we had 40 people were on the Zoom call, everybody in their little window, like Hollywood Squares back in the day. And it was all aspects and all parts of the paper were involved. This is sort of showed you within that meeting just the reach that she has and how much she's you know, affected different parts of our culture. A lot of it's, I think, interesting because I feel like she's not necessarily the one who's out there making these comments or, or creating that correction directly. It's people kind of looking at her and what she represents and bringing that to her themselves. But she's been a, a huge figure in the, the tournament itself. It, it felt like it was almost starting again once she, once she finally went out on that Friday night. Well, somebody that's covered some of the largest names in the sport, writing a book on Roger Federer, what do you see as her impact not on just the women's game, but the game of tem- tennis and sport. I mean, you mentioned that Tiafo is somebody who grew up idolizing her, Coco Goff, people like that. What is her impact on sport? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, I think it's, it's certainly it's in terms of making the sport of tennis, like that final kind of leap to being accessible to many different communities around the world. It's not just in the U.S. I mean, if you're a, somebody from the outside culture, you're also looking at the Serena and Venus story and going, wow, anything is possible. So I think there was that sort of idea of the dream and, and realizing a family really applied themselves and had this uh, continuity to their approach. Anything really was possible if you had this sort of talent at the beginning. So I think that's, you know, the King Richard movie and all those sorts of things reflect that. So I think that inspirational aspect of it is there on a universal level, but you can just see it. I mean, you look at the, the stands at a, at a tournament in the United States. Now it's a real rainbow coalition. Now when you look at those, uh, the fans following tennis, it's brought a lot of uh, African-American and uh, fans to the sport and a lot of African-American players to the sport who are going to make an impact going forward. You can look at the juniors and see uh, who's playing. You know, and someone like Coco Goff came through that way as well. She's not the only one, but that, that's a direct link right there to, uh, to the future of tennis. And I think they also played, she and Venus, it is a joint uh, sort of um, legacy in a lot of ways. Venus came along first and they were raised and coached the same way they changed the, the way the game was played in that they were so powerful, so aggressive, 
so sure of themselves, frankly, and raised to be that way, but also, you know, all core players able to come forward, able to stay back and able just to hurt you from any part of the court. And I think until then there hadn't been that full package approach to, to women's tennis, especially. So I think they did change that. And you look at the people who are, if you watched anybody like Arena Sabalenka or Igor Fiantek in this tournament, you can see it. Just a huge serving, huge power, take the ball early. It's very concussive, percussive kind of approach to tennis. So that that's a direct sort of stylistic legacy as well. Well, and I think, it, you know, you talk about all the different parts of the paper that went around it. Seeing her as a mom with her daughter there, you know, for parents who watch it, who want kids to play. My five-year-old son thought it was really cool that her daughter was in the stands cheering on his mom, her mom. Like, it's that kind of stuff that she didn't even have that part of the story to tell before that now adds to her own legacy there. Moving on with the rest of the tournament, tell me about Tunisia's Minister of Happiness, who now is in the finals. <laughs> I love that, yeah. Almost Jabur, yeah, she's a, she's a great story, too. You know, like in the Francis TFO mold, she's somebody coming from a region that hasn't produced a superstar tennis player before, you know, from uh, the Arab world and from Tunisia. And um, she's somebody who, uh, if you know her and get a chance to interview her, she's got so much sort of good vibes about her. And she's very popular in the locker room, makes a lot of connections. She's somebody walking through the, the, the area of the U.S. Open or French Open. She's always like reaching out, talking to people, and patting them on the back, cracking a joke, got a lot of wit. So she's somebody I think you naturally root for. But the thing that's fun about her is that her game is so uh, appealing because it's, it's so varied in a lot of ways. It's, she's, she can hit all kinds of different shots. She's a, she's a show woman in a lot of ways, likes to uh, slice, drop shot, but she can also play big bang ball as well. Somebody who um, had some problems, I think, with fitness early in her career has solved those. And she's, she really is an eye-catching tennis player, not just because of her story, but because of the way she, she creates and the way she constructs points. So I think the final will be very interesting because Sviantec is much more of a power player, super uh, explosive athlete, but owns as somebody who can kind of carve you up and, and make you change pace and put you out of position. And, and she's uh, she's very flashy, but as far as her, her impact, she could have a huge impact in that region of the world. And I know in Tunisia, which really doesn't follow in traditionally women's sports or much tennis, she is, she's a, a huge star there now. And they're actually, programming uh, tennis instead of soccer at different times. Swiatek so. has the most experience going into the final. She's the world number one, two-time French champion, going for a third Grand Slam title. You had a piece, though, about her work with a performance psychologist that's helped her to stay focused. We talked about Nick Kyrgios and his mental health challenges and trying to stay focused. Can you talk about her efforts to try and keep her focus on the court? Yeah, interestingly, both she and Ons Jabber have made that a real priority in their, in their careers. I know almost worked with a one as well and still has one with her and they both will have their performance psychologists in their boxes for the final. They're both big parts of their teams. Uh, Iga Shiantek is the first player I know at the high level who's brought a psychologist into her team full-time Daria Abramovich, who's a, who's Polish like Iga and somebody who's worked with all kinds of athletes before a lot of sailors. She's a sailor herself, but it's been a very systematic approach. I think Iga will tell you she had confidence issues and, and I think um, performance anxiety issues. And so she wanted to address that and has done so very systematically. They do a lot of work with visualization, a lot of work with um, deep readings about psychology, does a lot of meditation on changeovers. You see her with her eyes closed, trying to visualize the stuff to come. And she's very open about it too, which I think it reflects this this new generation of athletes. And uh, I think it's one of the big reasons why she's been successful, but it is not the only reason. <laughs> I mean, this is a great athlete. She's 
she really is. Her dad was an Olympic rower uh, for Poland at the Olympics. And she, uh, as she says herself, I, I got the good gene pool. And she did. <laughs> Definitely did. All right. So th there's a big controversy in tennis. The women use a smaller tennis ball than the men. Not everywhere, though. <laughs> why, why is it that the U.S. Open insists on using this smaller tennis ball? And is it an issue with most of the women that are on the tour? Or is it just a few that have started to raise this issue? You know, this has been this way for a long time. I don't know exactly how long it's been going on for, but I mean, many years that the U.S. Open has done that. It was done partly in, in a lot of them in, in concert with the women's tennis tour. The players wanted it. They felt like the heavier ball was going to create issues for them with um, injuries and arm injuries. And I think they felt that it was a, it was a healthier option. This new generation of players has made it an issue. And um, it came up really first in a major way. Ash Barty, number one player from Australia, who retired very suddenly this year after winning the Australian Open, has been a big icon there. I was again at 2.30 or 3 in the morning doing a press conference with her coach after she won in Australia this year. And I asked him about the U.S. Open, which at the time was the only one she hadn't won of the majors before she retired. And the coach said, as long as they keep that ball, she'll never win. That explains all the weird results there. It felt like the ball was flying. It was hard to control. So it's just kind of a – these complaints are relatively new, if you ask me, but it has definitely gathered momentum. But one of the ones who complained the most about it is Iga Fiantek. And uh, obviously she's still been able to play pretty good tennis to get to the final. So I feel like the U.S. Open has been thrown a little bit under the bus on this because it feels like it's a sexist sort of thing, but it really has been done, from my understanding, you know, in harmony and concert with, with the women's tour. So maybe they'll change their mind now and go to the uh, same ball, which a lot of other tournaments do. And I don't see why they wouldn't, but I don't think the U.S. Open's dying to have different balls for women and men. It's just the way it's worked out. All right. Last question. What do you think we're going to see this weekend? terms of matches got the women's final on saturday two semifinals tonight for the men the final on sunday uh what do we expect to say i think i told you guys this a couple of times i'm much better at looking at it after the fact and trying to sound all analytical than anything <laughs> so are we that's why i asked you on the front there side exactly <laughs> we just keep passing the buck to somebody else on this one no but i honestly i feel like um if alcaraz is able to recover from his crazy all-night match the other night and going to bed at 6.30 in the morning and discovering all the great all-night diners of New York. I, I think he's he's the class of the field at the moment. Casper Ruud, the Norwegian, is sort of the sleeper. He's a guy who uh, people haven't paid a lot of attention to, but he is a fantastic tennis player. He got to the French Open final this year. He's had a lot of quality wins on hard courts and clay courts, and both he and Alcaraz have number one at stake. They can get to the final. One of them will be number one. If they don't, Nadal will be number one. But I got to, I got to say, having watched Alcaraz all season and knowing his upside, I got to say, I think he'll, he'd be my favorite to to win. And then on the uh, women's side, that's a good match. Sviantek, not 100% comfortable with the U.S. Open on these faster hard courts. Jabir uh, having the variety to disrupt her. I think Iga is a slightly more imposing, powerful force, and has already conquered the Grand Slam, uh, you know, being able to get through that mentally and, and win two of them at the French Open. And has had a fantastic season, won six tournaments, has been the dominant player. But Ons has this compelling story arc, so I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I, I guess I would go with, with Sviantek and Alcaraz. Well, as you watch a lot of the new blood this weekend, go ahead, Jeff. Wait, wait, I, I have something. I have a prediction, which is Chris is not going to sleep this weekend. 
And, and <laughs> so, but, but my question about that though, is, you know, sport is trying, sports are trying to lure younger viewers and, and does it make it difficult for younger viewers to get involved or be interested in tennis when matches are starting at nine o'clock at night and ending at one or two o'clock in the morning? Is there any discussion within the U S open or are they just happy saying, this is the way we're going to do it. We're all, we're going to constantly start these matches at nine or 10 o'clock at night. Look, it's a, I think it's a very worthy debate. Uh, it applies to a lot of sports, as you guys know. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, watching the world series, I didn't have to stay up till midnight to watch the end of the world series. I mean, it's, it applies to a lot of sports, but tennis, at least in the U S and Australia and mold takes it to the extreme for sure. However, it's a good time to be a junior tennis fan in uh, Hawaii, for example, <laughs> Three hours earlier. Perfect. You, Just got to switch time zones and you're all good. A little, little TV dinner. You watch the end of the Alcaraz match there out there in Honolulu. And also tennis is a global sport, as you guys know, very global, much like soccer is. So somebody's hell at three in the morning is somebody else's paradise at a, at a good time of day, if you're in Europe or somewhere else. So it does have this sort of round the clock kind of feel to it, tennis. But ultimately, if you're going to put a U.S. Open on, you're doing it for the fans in your city, in your time zone, in your culture. And it's insane to have that amazing match the other night finishing at 2.50 a.m. And, and honestly, the U.S. Open organizers are smart people and they know it's insane, um, even though, you know, it's, it's, it's got something that can reach out to the European morning audience and get a decent rating off of that. But it's just not good. And also, it's ultimately not fair or healthy for these athletes to be finishing it and you know, going to bed at six in the morning and pulling all nighters in the middle of a major sporting event. So. I hope it changes. You know, part of the fact is reason it's the way it is, is it's developed into this night session situation where you want to sell separate night session tickets, especially during the week. You want to create the revenue for that. The TV, the TV, uh, the broadcasters want it. They want the separate thing. They're trying to maximize their revenue and they're trying to basically, you know, respect gender equality. You're trying to have a woman's match and a men's match in this showcase thing. The women play best of three sets and the men still play best of five. There is a growing movement that why the men still play best of five attention spans are decreasing. Should we you know, basically cut down the men's matches to best of three? The grand slams don't want that because the rest of the tour is best of three and best of five is their distinguishing feature. And there are these amazing epic marathon matches that we've all gotten used to with the big three of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. And the one we saw the other night, would, would that have been as good best of three? I don't think so. Would have maybe been close to as good? Okay, maybe. And then you would have gotten to bed a lot earlier. So that's the thing. If you want to keep this night session with a women's match and a men's match, both getting equal billing, it's a hard thing to control because best of three, best of five, they both go the distance. You get what happened the other night. You're going to get like a, you could have gone even later. Women's match before was straight sets, but that had gone three and a half hours. Then you follow that with five hours and 15 minutes of Alcaraz and center it would have been breakfast at the U S open. Then Chris never sleeps. Well, exactly. Or we take you out breakfast, you know, where's a good place. <laughs> so it's, it's not easy, but they got to find a better way, I think. And, and I don't know if it's better to maybe alternate, have a best of five men's match one night and then two best of three women's matches the next night and kind of do it that way. But I, I just think to keep finishing these hours and, and it seems like it's happening more and more. is just not, not a good look. 
Well, Chris, on behalf of all our Hawaii listeners, we really pre- <laughs> we appreciate you pandering to them. <laughs> yes, we'll make well, sure. I used, to, I used to live in Hawaii, and both my parents were born there, so I got a connection, so I can relate to it. But I, I'm thinking about covering next year's US Open from Honolulu, actually. I think it'll be great. Look, it'll work out better for your sleep schedule. Chris Clary, New York Times, author of The Master. You can go pick that book up as soon as you finish watching the tournament and reading all about it. Thank you so much for giving us the time, as always, and for your coverage. Appreciate it, guys. You guys are great. Love love the dialogue. All the best. Always a blast. Take it easy. How impressive was it? This guy is able to stay up for these matches. I can't do it. Yeah, I'm impressed that he was even awake to talk to us. We'll leave it there. Everybody should watch the matches this weekend. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.